Um, so I think as everybody knows that, you know, uh, with the advent of very potent, um, tolerable antiretroviral therapy, the fastest growing cohort of people with HIV are those over the age of 50. And this is also the group that is experiencing higher rates of comorbidities that are age-related, but also geriatric syndromes such as frailty, neurocognitive impairment and mental health issues. And with the the need to um, prevent and manage the comorbidities, we're also seeing polypharmacy in this group of patients. Um, there is a debate about whether these comorbidities and frailty syndromes are occurring at a younger age or they're occurring at the usual age that we would expect to see them, but at greater rates than the general population. So I think if we look back to prior to potent antiretroviral therapy, um, and there used to be rates of HIV-associated dementia of about 15%. We do not see HIV-associated dementia. It's, uh, these days it's extremely rare. But there have been many studies done that show that there are quite high rates of asymptomatic neurocognitive impairment in um, our population of people with HIV, and, and these people can actually progress to symptomatic neurocognitive impairment. We also need to remember that our our patients who are ageing are at risk of vascular dementia and Alzheimer's disease, so it's important to screen for neurocognitive um, impairment and then go on to more formal testing. Frailty uh, is different. Frailty isn't just HIV and comorbidities. You can have two patients with the same number of comorbidities or the same comorbidities, and one can be quite robust and one can be very frail. It's a different geriatric syndrome that's worth um, screening for because you can screen and, and determine when someone is pre-frail and maybe... Um, intervene with some very simple interventions um, and either prevent progression or return that individual to a more robust state, improve their quality of life. So what are our recommendations as far as polypharmacy frailty and cognitive function screening go? So we're recommending that um, we assess mobility and frailty in all individuals with HIV who are over the age of 50 using an assessment tool that has been used in people with HIV previously. The frequency of assessment is guided by that initial assessment. So it should be more frequent in people that are frail or pre-frail, but those that are robust, you don't need to do it again for another five or so years. In those that are frail or pre-fail, it's worth considering um, a complete geriatric assessment and institute exercise and physical therapy, nutrition advice, mental health assessment, and also pay attention to the polypharmacy. 
We also recommend the routine assessment of cognitive function every other year using a validated instrument. And we recommend this in people that are a little bit older than those that we recommend the frailty assessments. We're recommending it in those that are older than 60 years. So how do we actually... Uh, assess for frailty. Now, there are a number of um, different tools. This is the frailty phenotype, and it has a number of domains. You look for unintentional weight loss, weakness, exhaustion, slow gait, physical activity, and this is all scored based on gender and age norms as robust, pre-frail and frail. Now, the weakness is actually assessed using a, dynan a dynanometer, um, which not many clinics have. So this is a difficult screening tool to use. So um, can we go to the first poll question for the um, audience and ask how frequently are you performing frailty assessments in your practice? Not at all, only when you suspect someone's frail or at regular intervals in older people with HIV. And can we see some results yet? Okay. So the majority of people aren't doing any frailty assessments in clinical practice. Yes, and minimal people are doing it at regular intervals. So can I move to the panel? Um, how often are you doing frailty assessments? What tool do you use and how often are you screening? Um, Raj? You know, this is um, an area I wish I did better at it. <laughs> Let me put it that way. I think, um, you know, um, the frailty assessments that what, what we've been trying to do is integrate an, uh, our geriatricians into our clinic. Um, I think as uh, primary providers, um, things like gate speed and, and um, uh, being able to get out of a chair, there are some things that, that I do think are useful. But it's not something that in our ID clinic we've done as, as well as we could. I think we're using these guidelines to try to, you know, get us, like the, like I think the audience, to get us to um, a more systematic uh, approach. I, I take my lead actually from, you know, some of the people on this call, like um, um, Melanie Thompson and others, and I'd love to see how they have integrated it into their clinics. I don't think we've done it as well as we could. What about you, Melanie? You're on mute. Second time today I get the award. Uh, <laughs> so I, I'm not sure that I do it as well as I could either, but I, I do try to be aware, first of all, that these frailty phenotypes can happen at an earlier age. And so, you know, we don't I like to think of people who are 50 as being older. I mean, I certainly don't like to think that way, being fairly past 50 myself. But I do think that these things can show up earlier. So I try to um, make this sort of an annual assessment um, as appropriate 
at a physical exam time for patients who were able to get in for an annual exam. Um, it actually doesn't take as long as you would think to do uh, some of the basic assessments. So, you know, certainly the Freed's frailty phenotype, which is kind of a tongue twister, um, is fairly easy. It's about weight loss, which you can calculate. It's about exhaustion, um, which is a question, you know, a couple of questions for the patient. Um, energy expenditure, how much, how active are they? Um, and then looking at their gait, how quickly do they walk? Now, this is the one that has grip strength, and that's where, you know, the equipment comes in. And I have to say, I don't do that. We don't have one in my clinic. Um, but I do try to assess some of the other things that would be important contributors to frailty. Um, for example, being sure that we're not talking about depression, because depression is very common um, for people in general, but also people with HIV, and especially as they age. And we know that depression can take many forms. And so I think um, being sure that we're not dealing with the depression, which should be treated differently, uh, or with substance use. Um, and another thing to me that's important is to look at social isolation, because we see that so much in our older patients, but also it's more common in people with HIV than people without HIV as they age. So uh, an assessment of their social networks. And, you know, I find this is more and more important in the time of COVID uh, because uh, I think we all feel a little isolated sometimes. Um, and for some people, it's not so much of a problem, um, but others are really suffering. So I kind of lump that into the frailty assessment. Yeah, I, mean, I think was what, what Melanie says, I think is really important. I, I don't do the tensionometer or whatever, but, but I, you know, frailty, you know, you can look at, at physical shrinking, unintentional weight loss. You can look at the ability of the individual to walk. How long does it take to walk 15 feet? And, you know, you can look at their level of physical activity. You can look at their mental health and, and a couple of things, and it will get you to understand that this person is, is having problems with frailty and, and how do you need to address them. Right. So we were involved with a couple of studies, and that got my attention. This is about three or four years ago, where we used grip strength and we used a 20-meter, uh, no one that long, 10-meter walk. And um, and it was remarkable. We, we looked at people who were even younger, and some of it may have been deconditioning, but a lot of the folks didn't do well at all. So that sort of got, at least me personally, thinking more about this. And I'm very happy that the, the current guidelines are taking this on because even though people aren't doing this regularly yet, it, it's we're in that pre-contemplative phase, right, where we're about to do it. And I think if we all commit to this, it will make a difference. The geriatric literature, or let's, let's say the geriatricians I've, ca I've talked to, don't even necessarily do a lot of these formal tests just routinely, but I think we can lead the way, the HIV providers in this, because I think it does make a lot of sense. And as you said, Melanie, just it doesn't take that much time. You can do sit, stand uh, 10 times in a chair when people are getting their vital signs. You can have them do a grip strength there, record it. And then as they're walking to the exam room, you can time the 10-meter walk or something like that. And And that doesn't take a lot of time. What we often see as an indicator of frailty is falls. 
And I think that's something we should be asking about routine. It's a simple question. Have you had an unanticipated fall? And that's a really major event as far as annual uh, one-year mortality even. So those are the kinds of things we can do. And, in fact, there are a number of different tools we can use. Sorry, sorry, Melanie. I was just going to say, I think the fall issue is a really good point because people often have an excuse for why they fell. But if you take it a little bit further, sometimes you will find that they actually are having trouble with balance. And I didn't mention balance, but those are other really easy tests you can do just to have someone stand on one foot, you know, walk a tandem uh, gait, things like that. But But even when people think that their fall was totally excusable, uh, there may be something else going on. And I was going to um, say there are a number of different frailty assessment tools, some of which <clears throat> include all of the things you've talked about, and, and in particular the Edmonton Frail Scale mm-hmm. actually includes the social isolation that Melanie was talking about, the falls, the balance, and also some neurocognitive um, issues as well. Um, so look at the different tools and see which is best for you. There are barriers to doing this in practice because we have to do so many things when we do annual assessments in our patients, the cardiovascular risk assessment, the bones, everything else, and, and fitting this in can be quite um, tricky. Um, okay. Um Go on. Before we go on, what, one other thing I'd like to add is that uh, what what we did in this iteration of the, the guidelines is that in the supplemental materials we include uh, these tools that people can reference. So so go online when you see the document, then you can click on supplementary material. No, and Jenny, this is Paul. Um, I, oh, Paul, sorry. I, I just want to be. Um, Self, uh, kind of revelatory as well as the other guys here. <laughs> uh, we're, we're not doing a good job of this, but I think that this could be actually one of the very important things of this guideline. Um, and, and in this, in this area, I, I think we all know it's an important uh, issue in our patients. Um, and I'm, I'm glad that we're giving people a tool, some of the tools that, that are needed to begin to incorporate. So thank you. Um, and just in the Q&A, there's a question about measuring quality of life. Um, just like the, um, Mike, we did a study of um, the uh, prevalence of frailty in our clinic. It was a, a medical student project and quality of life was part of that project. And people who are pre-frail and frail have significantly lower quality of life. We use the POSQUAL scale, um, which is a, an Australian scale that can be done online. And, in fact, we're now introducing that into um, a pre-appointment um, completion so that we are aware of the, um, the quality of life issues for that individual prior to their appointment. The other thing I was going to mention was there's a move um, with the frailty index. If I can share my screen again, uh, there, uh, the frailty index is now being um, adapted to an electronic frailty index where you can use 
what is already on your electronic medical record to give you a sense of the frailty index in that individual. The frailty index to me doesn't include the the physical frailty components, which I think are really important. Um, we might move on to uh, the neurocognitive screening in your practice poll question. Can we put this poll question to the audience? So how frequently are you performing neurocognitive screening? Not at all, only when you suspect that there is an issue or at regular intervals. Okay. Mostly when you suspect there's neurocognitive impairment rather than at regular intervals. Um, I suspect that this is like most of us, that just as with um, screening for frailty, we're screening um, for um, neurocognitive impairment um, only when we see that it's necessary. I'm having trouble. Yeah. So there, again, we didn't actually provide any advice on what tool to use for uh, screening. And there are a number of tools that have been used in people with HIV, the International HIV Dementia Scale, the HIV Dementia Scale, Mini Mental State Exam, the Montreal Cognitive Assessment and the European AIDS Society three neurocognitive impairment screening questions. Um, can I ask the panel, which scale do you use if you use a scale and how often are you screening? And also how accurate do you find these screening tools given that the majority of our patients are going to have asymptomatic neurocognitive impairment? Maybe I'll comment here that we have yeah. been using the mini mental uh, state exam. Um, we have a neuro ID clinic and so routinely they're administering this exam. Um, one point that I alluded to before and maybe worth just bringing out for a moment is um, Nader CD4 count is a very strong predictor of a lot of these um, uh, frailty and neurocognitive phenotypes. And so our patients that we've been caring for for decades now are at the highest risk for that. And mm -hmm. so um, we, we must be broad in our screening, but I think it's particularly important in people who have been living with HIV for decades um, and who had a low CD4 count to begin with. Um, so, yeah, yeah. There, there are some uh, neurocog screening tests that can be, you can incorporate into your, even your EMR or do some pre-screening as patients are sitting in a waiting room or an exam room. Uh, one of which, Paul, you may know about this. It was developed at UCSF, and it's kind of more widely available, at least for research purposes. We're going to be implementing this into Scenic. There's a bunch of commercial ones. I don't know how to judge them. They're a little bit pricey. Um, there's one out of Australia, Jenny, that I'm aware of, yeah. but we didn't we didn't purchase it. Um, but I think people are kind of getting into this. And, again, the geriatric Practices don't do routine screening, uh, at least that I'm aware of, not as a practice. So here's where HIV, I think, is going to lead the way. 
Uh, I think mm-hmm. they're, they're subacute um, or subclinical. Sorry, uh, neurocognitive impairment. I think we're going to discover a fair amount of. And my final point is, is that when we think about uh, sort of dementia of some sort, we typically think of just you know the very the older group of patients um, over the age of eighty five even. Where, but here in, in our younger patients with HIV, I'm just saying over 55, 60, it's a little different because it's more the executive functioning. It gets a little bit out of whack. So it's, it's more than just a memory problem. It's a processing problem. And those are the differences that some of these neurocog tests will pick up. I guess, I guess Mike, um, and Jenny, to be maybe a little contrarian, um, as we were saying earlier, when you're talking about CD4 measurements, we don't have a drug for CD4, so why do we measure it? Uh, I've been a little bit of a skeptic of the of the asymptomatic uh, cognitive impairment because I don't have any treatment for it, um, and I'm not sure uh, how much good it does to tell a person that you know that he or she is measuring um, as somewhat cognitively impaired. Um, I, I don't know. Can you react to that, Jenny? Well, I, that's where I was getting at um, the accuracy of the screening tools because if somebody is actually um, scoring as impaired on the tools, they're actually not asymptomatic. They're symptomatic. Okay, but I, I, I mean, uh, I saw a, a patient that we published in Jade's a while ago um, that did a screening, I think it was in the UK, and 50% of people um, scored as, as impaired. Um, and that, to me, what does that mean? I, well, yeah. yeah, so man, woman, television, remember <laughs> yeah, that? Yeah, anyway, right. so, yeah, you can remember that. But, but, <laughs> but, but the things, unfortunately, you're right, but there are data that show that um, – Engagement and in, in, in training and physical training, as well as some uh, routine exercise programs, not only improves frailty, but does improve neurocognitive to some degree. So that's something we could suggest until we get drugs or something that we can do to help. The other thing is that there may be a safety issue um, in terms of if somebody's living alone, uh, Melanie mentioned the intervention, the uh, isolation, but if somebody's living at home and they're neurocognitively impaired, there's risk of, of all kinds of things from fire to other, uh, like leave something on the stove. And the other problem is driving. Um, and because driving is a complex set of functions. And if we stumble onto this in the screen, then you don't just stop there. You go ahead and get a formal, um, neurocognitive assessment, which is a much engaged uh, two-hour thing, and then you talk to psychologists. But the purpose of the screening is not is as much for safety as it is for therapy. Melanie? I would agree with that, and I think they're also – oh, sorry, Jenny. Come on, I, I always I want – when you have thoughts. Are issues about polypharmacy, um, which we haven't really talked about very much. Um, sometimes when I do a screen um, and find that someone didn't score as well as they might have, that person actually has some awareness of the, that issue and you can talk with them about it. But I also think it, it also should be part of our screening of polypharmacy because 
Many patients as they get older are taking so many different drugs. Sometimes the drugs can cause impairment. Sometimes we can find a reason, something we could fix. Um, or sometimes we need to look at the, the medication list and just um, just review with the patients whether they're taking the drugs that they are prescribed or whether they're taking them correctly. So I, I think that is an intervention that's easy to do, but it actually um, sometimes gives you a hint as to why someone is scoring badly in terms of neurocognitive or even frailty. So the idea is not we don't really have a treatment. Um, I agree with that. But I think we can do some things to help protect people and actually sometimes even reverse some of the symptoms that people are displaying. And in that regard, the polypharmacy issue we briefly talked about in the context of boosters, but this drug-drug interaction issue that also arises um, is critical because um, as people get older and get meds for other conditions, if it's interacting with their HIV meds, then people obviously can get into quite serious trouble. And when we talked about cobacistat containing regimens and botanivir containing regimens with the over-the-counter drugs like platicazone, uh, et cetera. Um, th- these are these are real problems. Um, and I was going to say, we they go to so many different consultants. They have all these different people that they may be seeing for different things, and sometimes even the patients don't know what they're taking. So you know, it becomes. I said a polypharmacy assessment was easy. It's not always so easy um, because sometimes people really don't know what they're taking. And I would agree with that. Um, We actually have an HIV specialist pharmacist that actually um, looks at all of the medication that a patient is taking. And I recently had one of my patients who sees multiple doctors in multiple hospitals as well as his general practitioner who's, um, your primary care provider equivalent. And not one of us had an accurate list of what medications this patient was taking. Um, and there were all sorts of drug-drug interactions that were going on. And this patient is frail. So it's a very important issue. And if you can get a pharmacist to do a review of all the medications, I would recommend that highly. The other thing I was going to say was we, we often use some of these screening tools to go on to more formal assessments, the more formal neuropsychology examination, imaging of the brain, and perhaps even CSF analysis to make sure that we don't have viral escape in the CSF, which you can do something about. You can change your antiretrovirals. But you can also look at other factors that might be contributing, for example, alcohol. Alcohol use will certainly um, have an impact on neurocognitive um, function and, you know, we can change that with the patient. And I think the whole idea of these assessments is really to optimise the health of our um, patients and to improve their quality of life with very simple interventions. Um, Do you guys have... um, multidisciplinary clinics that um, an individual can be seen by a geriatrician, um, by a pharmacist, physiotherapist, the nutritionist, all in one sitting. Is that something that you have or aspire to, like me? I'm trying to set that up at the moment because we don't have the geriatric assessment clinic that I would like to have. 
We have a pretty, uh, we have a very multidisciplinary clinic at the VA here in San Francisco. We don't have a geriatrician uh, really embedded in the in the clinic, but we have easy access to geriatrics uh, consults because it's such a big problem in that patient mm-hmm. population. Um, but we have uh, HIV pharmacist, um, HIV psychologist. It's it's really quite quite uh, impressive. Uh, that's great. Um, very lucky. Well, I would say my my answer would be no. Um, but here's a really great opportunity for telehealth. Telemedicine, um, being a, if, if we had a system that we could tap into where those resources were available, uh, they're just not available in many places. They're not available in, in private practices. They're not available in rural areas where there may not even be an HIV provider. You know, they're, they're just not available in many places. But here would be a really terrific way to put together a, a you know, telemedicine geriatric clinic that would provide many of these things, which which really could be done by telehealth in many regards. Yeah. Yeah. Jenny, you could put that together for us in Australia, and we can use yours. <laughs> and come visit. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so are, are there any other barriers, do you I think, don't think you'll doing these visit. assessments? That's right. Australia does not want us. Not Americans. Not now. You have to go into quarantine for two weeks if you come. Um, What are the other barriers to doing these assessments, if any, do you see? I I think Melanie has mentioned quite a few um, for individuals who are in rural areas, regional areas, not close to high caseload clinics, um, public clinics, um, and also the time for the provider to actually do all of this, I think, is an issue. So I think Melanie mentioned the polypharmacy, which is readily Mm -hmm. fixable, and I think there are drugs that cause some degree of impairment. A question that we have from uh, Michael Silverman here is, what about when you find somebody who's got what appears to be hand, the HIV-associated neurocognitive disease, do we get a, a CSF to look for viral load that it might be up um, while this plasma viral load is suppressed? And if we see that, do we focus on more drugs that penetrate the CSF better? Or what's the current thinking on that? Personally, I think it's debatable. Our practice in Melbourne is that we do. Um, we do do a CSF. We do look for CSF um, viral escape. And we do, um, it is recommended by our um, HIV clinician who is um, more experienced with uh, neurocognitive issues. She does recommend switching antiretroviral therapy to anything with the best penetration effectiveness score. Now, I realise all of that is quite controversial. That's frequently ACT. (laughs) (laughs) We don't use ACT. (laughs) I I actually remember this discussion on this very panel in about 1996 or 97 about whether we should put everybody, maybe it was 98 when we had some other drugs, whether we should put everybody on ACT because of the CNS penetration. Interesting. Yeah. So do any of you do 
um, lumbar punctures, CSF analysis, switch antiretroviral therapy in that scenario? No. And, uh, and people who've had I, I refer deterioration, we have been doing that. It, it's very uncommon, um, but we've done it once or twice a year, three times a year. This will come up where someone has really a very unexplained deterioration. You can't blame it on polypharmacy. You can't blame it on drug interactions, alcohol. Um, and when we do find it, which is uncommon, um, then we do modify it just because we don't. Once you find it, it seems hard not to make an adjustment, it although is. we don't use ADT. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So nothing different with anyone else. Okay. Well, um, I'm not sure if there are any questions. There's no open questions. It is um, 8 o'clock. Um, well, no, it's not 8 o'clock your time. Well, 8 o'clock my I time. Gonna, I was going to say, am I having neurocognitive impairment? Yeah, it's the top of the hour, and... Uh, I think we're, you know, we're ending about a minute early, but I think that's okay. Thank you, Jenny. Great thanks, job. Jenny. And thanks for coming on so early in the morning. Um, it would have been earlier except our, yeah, anyway. It's Friday. Um, it's Friday in Melbourne, right? Friday. Yeah. <laughs> and you're out of lockdown now. Is that right? You're out of lockdown. I can have a haircut. <laughs> we're we're <laughs> envious of your case. Tell everybody the caseload in, in Australia over the last month. How many new cases a day? So on Monday and Tuesday, we had zero new cases on both of those days. We've had two um, on Wednesday and Thursday. So it sounds, so, like, sounds like you're rounding the corner. Yeah, we had... <laughs> yeah, but you had, stay there. We had two cases in the last second. So, uh, <laughs> we're, we're right in, with... In, in your neighborhood. Yeah. <laughs>